And let's pray one more time here for the reading and preaching of the Word. Our Father, if we dare not go through this world without listening to Your voice, and we would not dare open Your Word this morning and think that we could hear Your voice apart from the work of Your Spirit. And so as sinners gathered in this place, we cry out, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Speak to us, O Lord. Let Your Spirit take this holy Word and apply it to our hearts. And we know that we have heard from You today. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. This is the holy and errant word of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has The ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.
We saw in the previous parables, a number of parables leading up to this parable this morning, that Jesus is telling His disciples and wants His disciples to understand that He is returning. And you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago that He told the parable of the ten virgins. And as He told that parable of the ten virgins, the point was that He is coming, so they are to wait And as they wait, they are to remain watchful in their waiting for His return. And now we have this parable this morning that commends to us, Jesus is saying, not only are you to be watchful in your waiting, but you are to be working in your waiting. The disciple of Christ is to be working, or she is to be working in their waiting. I want to this morning look at that. That is the key to this parable. That is the thrust of this parable. So we are going to look at that, working in our waiting. So look at that in the parable. And then I want to make clear what this parable is not about. So we'll look at that main point. Then we'll look at what this parable is not about. So only two points this morning. But then we're going to follow with six applications. So... Uh, I get eight points with you this morning. First, the simple point this morning of the parable, we are to work in our waiting. Jesus tells the story, a parable of this master who goes away and he leaves his servants in charge of his possessions and his things. At this time in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, servants would have had a lot more freedom They would have had a lot more authority and responsibility than we normally think of. And it wouldn't have been strange for a master to have left certain realms of his possessions or his interests in the keeping of one of his servants or slaves. And that servant would have gained from doing this for his master. He would have even at this time in the ancient world have benefited at many times from some of the fruit that he produced. It would have been shared with him by his master. And so we have a master in this parable doing something very similar. He is going away. And as he goes away, he gives to his servants some of his possessions for their keeping and multiplying for his sake. He gives them, as we are told in the passage, talents. Now, talents in Jesus' day were a form of currency. But we've taken that in English, that word talent, and it's come into our English language from this parable to represent, and it gets a little confusing, we will use it to represent someone's gifts, someone's abilities, uh, someone's blessings, uh, the things that have been given to us by the Lord, and we will speak of those as talents. And That's not wrong. That's a right derivative from this parable. But what Jesus says the Master gives them is money. He is giving them currency. The one servant, he gives five talents and another two. And then the third, he gives only one talent. 
And the first two servants, they understand and they embrace the tasks that set before them. They both prove to be responsible. They invest what they have received and they end up doubling what was entrusted to them in return to their master. The five-talent man will produce five more talents. And so he has a total of ten talents. The two-talent man will invest his and receive back two talents. And so he will have four talents to return to his master. But the one-talent man, he buries his talent in the ground. And obviously, there is no return for burying something in the ground. And so when his master returns, he has but that same one talent to return to his master. The master does return. Jesus is returning. Make no mistake, He's coming back. And when He comes back, there is an accounting. There's going to be an accounting for that which we have received. And when the Master returns, He commends both the five-talent man and the two-talent man. Both receive the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And then they each receive a promise. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then he encourages both of them. Enter into the joy of your master. However, the one talent man does not receive this commendation. He does not receive this promise. And he does not receive this encouragement. In fact, even before the master can speak to him, he seizes the moment and he speaks first to his master. And he tries to offer a sort of defense for the lack of action that he took. He says to his master, I know you to be a hard man. And then he confesses to being afraid of his master. There's a reluctance on his part. This one-talent man is risk-adverse. He is afraid of the fallout that would happen if he lost this one talent that his master had entrusted to him, and so he hides it. He thinks this seems like a safer course of action. But what he doesn't realize or seem to comprehend is that this would result in even greater loss for him. The master hears, and when the master sees this, he doesn't commend this one talent man, but rather he condemns him. He doesn't promise him reward. He rather promises him punishment. And he doesn't provide encouragement, but rather he casts him out into the outer darkness, a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, he calls him wicked and he calls him slothful. The point, the point of the parable is that a disciple of Christ in their waiting are to be working. We're waiting. We're waiting for the return of Christ, but in that waiting we are to be working. Now, here's where it gets confusing, right? This parable on 
the face of it, on the surface of it, it feels very unchristlike. It seems very opposed to everything that we have heard him say in the Gospel of Matthew to this point. We will hear him say that he came for the sick. He came not for the righteous. He came for the sinner. And yet here in this parable, it seems as if what he is saying is that it's the man that works that is received. It's the man that does, that does works righteousness that is received into the kingdom by Christ when he returns. We've seen in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus will rebuke especially the Pharisees and the scribes. And why? Because he says they lay such a heavy burden upon the people. They had a a works righteousness mentality that if you did and you did righteousness, then you would be received. And Jesus says they are laying such a heavy burden upon the people of God, it just weighs down the soul. So He rebukes them time and time again. And yet here, Jesus is talking about working. This man is condemned when the Master sees he has not worked. Is this parable at odds with everything that we have seen from Jesus thus far in the Gospel of Matthew? The answer, of course, is no. Let's be clear. As we try and get rid of this misinterpretation of the text or clear up what it is not saying, let's be very clear. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It has always been this way. It is the only way for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul will articulate that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that those kind of famous verses that probably state it better than any other, where he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You've been saved by grace, through faith. It's not a result of works. No, it's a gift of God. Why? So that no one can boast. There's no sense whatsoever that we somehow produce sufficient works to be acceptable in the sight of God. We are sinners and all that we do is stained with sin apart from His grace. I think of David, that great Old Testament saint, uh, the paragon of a man after God's own heart, a man that sought after God. And you all know the story there in 2 Samuel 11 where David commits these two absolutely horrific sins where he commits adultery with a married woman and then he kills her husband to cover it up. 
And you get that Psalm 51, maybe the second most famous psalm after Psalm 23, that Psalm 51 where David is racked with grief for the sin. And he says in Psalm 51 that as his conscience is burdened with this sin that he has committed, he is so racked with grief that he says it's as if his bones are wasting away within him. The weight of sin can be, be so heavy that it takes the strongest part of our bodies and it makes it feel like they're just wasting away under the pressure of it. But David, in that psalm, he finds relief and he finds restoration with God. How? By doing a certain number of works to earn his way back to God by doing enough works that his father welcomed him and said, well done, good and faithful servant. No. David confessed his sin. He looked to the Lord in faith and the Lord forgave him. That is the only way, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, until the very return of our Christ upon the clouds for someone to be saved. By grace alone, through faith alone. Now David, he remained a sinner after that confession. He says in verse 2 of Psalm 51 that he was blessed because the Lord did not count his iniquity against him. It was still his iniquity. It was still his sin. It just wasn't counted against him. It just wasn't credited to his account any longer. We're not forgiven because we become righteous. We are forgiven and declared righteous. And that makes a world of difference. David remained a sinner. But he was a sinner who exercised faith and he turned to the Lord in trust. You say, but, but that exercise of faith, is that not a work? No. Paul says there in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, faith is a gift. It's simply received. It's simply the instrument by which you and I receive the salvation of God. It's a gift. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone then what in the world is Jesus talking about in this parable? This man doesn't do works. He doesn't do sufficient good works, and so he is not acceptable. What's he talking about? I should remind you of James 2, where James asks this question, What good is it, my brothers, if... Someone says he has faith, but does not have works. What is James saying? He is saying justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We're justified by faith, but that faith is always, always accompanied by works. 
Even that famous passage there in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a result of works. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Why? So that no one may boast. Then verse 10, what? For we were created in Christ Jesus. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works, but we are saved unto works. Calvin, commenting upon this, said this. He said, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone, we are not thinking of a dead faith. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith with just, which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone, because it is constantly conjoined with light. The faith that you and I receive as a gift, it's a living faith. It's not a dead faith. And so because it is a living faith, it informs our living. It's worked out in our living. It is exemplified in our living. Can't help but be so. Again, let's be crystal clear. We're not saved by work. And yet, a faith absent of works proves itself not to be saving faith. And that's Jesus' point. This one-talent man, he professes to be a servant of the Master. But it's mere profession. It's not real. Because he doesn't serve this Master. He is no servant. He's lazy and he's wicked and he proves by the lack of his service that he is indeed not a servant. He's simply a professor. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, let us by God's grace never be content with the profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of religion, but do something too. Not all who profess actually are. The disciple of Jesus waits and he watches for his return, but also works while waiting. And why? Because it's a living faith. It's a, it's a faith that works itself out. It's also true that we work in our waiting because, as we see in this parable, there are blessings for doing so. There are eternal rewards. But most importantly, we work in our waiting because we love Him. We love the Master. You'll notice about the one-talent man that he doesn't love his Master. What he says of the masters, he says, I know you to be a hard man. And then that shapes everything that he knows about him. He's afraid of him. There's no love there. 
the ten-talent man and the, or the five-talent man and the four-talent man, they love him. And so they want to multiply what he has given to them for the honor of their master. Oh, the disciple of Christ finds Christ a lovely man. He's the delight of our souls, and so we want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. To give all that we have to Him. This becomes our duty even as it becomes our delight. So six applications. The first has to be this. The first has to be this. You need to live in light of Christ's return. He's coming. He's coming. And when He comes, there's an accounting. And when He comes upon the clouds and He returns, will He find you to be just a mere professor or a true servant? That has to be the first application of this text. That has to be the first question that you and I ask ourselves. Am I truly a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Second, let us embrace the fact that Christ gifts differently to different servants of His. Christ gives gifts differently to different servants of His. One man is given five talents. The other man is given two talents. And that's his right. That's his prerogative. He's the master. He has every right to give one man or one woman five talents and to give another two talents. And he gives differently. Third, let us therefore acknowledge that though He gives differently, we are not to play the comparison game as an excuse. We are not to play the comparison game as an excuse. What if the two-talent man had said, you know what? I'm fed up with this. I didn't get five talents like him. I'm doing nothing with my two talents. And he wouldn't have heard, well done, good and faithful servant. He wouldn't have heard, come and enjoy the presence of your master. So often we play this comparison game. My life doesn't quite look like their life. Look at what wonderful talents they possess, and we become discouraged with our meager fruitfulness. But none of us is commended based upon our comparison with others. We're commended based upon what we have done with what we have been given. You are to labor with what you have been given. It is so easy to become discouraged and take our eyes off the coal upon our own lives by comparing ourselves to others. I was recently sitting with some pastor friends and we were talking about some of our mentors in the faith and some of the men that we consider some of the best preachers in our day. There's one man in particular that has highly influenced me, and we were talking about him, and one of my friends told a story about him. 
where he had just, this man had preached a glorious sermon. One of those that, ah, it seems only those nine and ten talent men ever do. And he came down from the platform and he sat down on the first row and this man was sitting next to him and he turned to him and he said, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon like that? And this man turned to him and he said, if it takes longer than a half hour, I find it's not worth preaching. And every preacher's heart just melts inside of him when he hears that. The same man, I had a friend that was in the bathroom with him before he was getting ready to go on the platform before a national conference, a conference you would, you would all know by name. He was getting ready to preach to this national conference and my friend was in the bathroom and, and he found this preacher writing notes on a piece of paper towel. And he asked him, he said, is that your preparation before you go out there and preach? And that man went, shh. Some men have ten talents. God bless them. Different talents, different gifts. In the church, we often celebrate the most gifted. We even use this, don't we, this parable. We will talk about them being talented, grabbing this language. They are the talented ones. They have wonderful gifts. What wonderful fruit they produce. But in the eyes of God, it is those who do much with what they have that He rejoices in. Much with what you have. I have a few friends in the ministry, fellow pastors, that have photographic memories of some sort or another. One of them has a library of tens of thousands of volumes of books. And I had another friend that was with him in that library. And he said there was an evening that he was started pulling books off the shelf and he would pull a book random off the shelf and say to this other man that we know would say, is this a good book? And he said it didn't matter what book it was. The man would just glance at the book and he would say, it's really good. Look at page 67, the bottom paragraph. That is the best paragraph you'll ever read on Union with Christ. That he could do it with any book. Different talents, different gifts. Another, one of my dearest pastor friends, that one day he came to me and he said, Jason, he said, if I just named a chapter of the Bible, could you tell me something that's in it? I said, well, I could probably do that with some, even verging on most, but surely I can't do that with all of them. And he said, oh, I was just wondering if that's unique, because I can do that with all of them. God bless you. I'm happy for you. <laughs> and he uses it for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Different talents. Different gifts, different abilities, or to labor with what we've been given. Both the five-talent man and the two-talent man employed what they received for the benefit and glory of their master, and they both 
received commendation. Fourth, know that your Savior delights in your meager offerings if you're using what He has gifted to you. Know that your Savior delights in your meager offerings if you are using what He has gifted to you. He delights. He says to both the five-talent man and the two-talent man when they return to him multiples what he had given to them, he says to both of them, well done, good and faithful servant. That is delight. He says to each of them the same thing, enter into the joy of your master. That is delight. It is joy for us because there is delight in Him. He delights in our meager offerings if we use what has been gifted to us. I've often found myself returning this to this kind of thought with people in pastoral counseling situations. I need to remind them of this. You're responsible. You are responsible for what the Lord gave you. And you are to use what He gave you for His glory. Maybe a husband and wife who come from a long line of unbelievers and are embarrassed that their family doesn't quite look like that family over there. But they came to Christian faith and This couple is attempting, by the best of their abilities, to raise their children in the knowledge and love of Christ, and they're laboring at it. It isn't easy for them. When they look around, their family doesn't quite look like that family over there. But that family over there has enjoyed five generations of Christian faith in their family. They've been gifted more. We could even say they have more talents to work with. So what? This family looks a little rougher. So what? That they don't quite look as put together. Things in the Christian life may come a little harder. They don't flash put togetherness quite like that generational Christian family. And yet, this Christian couple may be just as much or even more honoring their master than that family which shines forth righteousness and godliness. They could be shining forth more We just can't see it, this side of heaven, but you'll be able to see it in glory. Another family is shiny, but they had nine talents already. This family had two, and they've multiplied it to four, or to five, or to six. To simply use what we have been given to know that our Savior delights in our meager offerings if we use what He has gifted us for His glory. Fifth, let us be humble in our relations with one another in light of our different giftings. 
Our different talents mean that we won't all labor for the kingdom in the same way, with the same things, producing the same results. It is close to impossible for you and I to categorically decide whether someone is using all of the talents or the gifts that the Lord has given to them. And that is a severe mercy of the Lord. That I don't know what the Lord has given you. And you don't know what the Lord has given to me. That is a mercy of the Lord. Because it prevents us from playing talent inspector. And it moves us to being a talent investor. Inspectors will sit in judgment over others and look down upon others and, and say, why aren't they doing more with what they have been given? Whereas talent investors understand that they are always looking up to their master and they are using those things for his glory. Talent inspectors always looking down. Talent investors always looking up. Think of Paul's words in Romans 14.4. It's a good reminder. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. My responsibility are my talents. That includes the gifts he has given to me. That includes the abilities he's given me. That includes the health that he has given to me. That includes the possessions that he has given to me. That includes the happy marriage that he has given to me, that includes whatever it is. Using those talents for his glory, that's my responsibility. And that's yours. Finally, we need to remind ourselves, even at the end of the sermon here, that as Jesus ends this parable, and he warns about this worthless sinner that he says is cast out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That as Jesus speaks of that, we are moving to the climax of this gospel. We've been in this gospel for three years. Three years. And within the next couple of weeks, we hit the climax. Where it's all headed. Where it was all aimed at. And Jesus knows that as He is preaching this parable, He knows where it's headed and He knows that it's just on the horizon. That when He speaks about this worthless servant being cast out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus knows that He's going to be cast out into the darkness. And that he is going to bear the weeping and gnashing of teeth unlike any person ever shall or ever will. Why? Is it because he was a wicked servant who didn't do the, the right righteous works before God? No, he comes into this world and he lives a completely righteous life. All that the Father has given to him, every single talent that he has received, he returns to the Father 
in multiplication. His entire life is lived as a righteous life, work after good work after good work after good work. Until that ultimate good work where He is laid out upon the cross and He surrenders Himself to the Father. It is the ultimate good work. You know, we will often talk about how we've done it in this sermon, how you and I are not saved by works. That's very true. We're not saved by works. In another real sense, we are saved by works. It's just not our works. It's His. He lives a perfectly righteous life works to His heavenly Father and dies in that great work upon the cross. Why? Because we couldn't work our way to God. We couldn't please Him with our righteous works. The Son could do all manner of righteousness and then He goes upon that cross to die for sinners in our place so that His righteousness might become our righteousness. So that we can here come into the presence of your Master. He pours out His life as a servant for us. And He is saying to the disciple, Oh, disciple, you must understand that as you are waiting, you are to be working as My servant. If He poured out His life for us, how can we not pour out our lives for Him? It's an act of thanksgiving. It's an act of love. an act of recognizing that we are His. And it's our duty, and it becomes our delight. Let's pray. Father, we give You praise for Your kindness in sending Christ to live a righteous life, and to die for sinners. We give You praise, O Christ, as our Master and King. You poured out Your life for the sake of us. The greatest righteous act that the universe shall ever witness. May we, in turn, out our lives for your glory and your honor and your praise. May we see our bodies as they are meant to be as a living sacrifice presented unto you. And we know that we belong body and soul to you, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, to seek to do all things to your glory and praise. May it become our delight even as it is our duty. It is in the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen.